Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan. Oh, it's always good to have a little bit of fun, and I sure appreciate the marshals and their great witness. Um, God does some wonderful things through wonderful volunteers and through folks who work in the background, and many of you are that, and we, we thank you and appreciate you. Um, because it's not just about getting tasks done. It's about, we believe, part of the process of becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. It's how God works in our, in our lives. So we're very, very grateful uh, as you participate in that. This morning, we're continuing to look at a series on uh, what we've called entitlement, uh, not related to the government. Uh, I came across, though, an entitlement creed this week, and this is what part of it says. This is what someone might claim. Uh, It's not our fault. If you've determined that it is our fault, you have a fallacy in your conclusion. We may sound like fools attempting to prove that it's actually your fault, but rest assured, it is. If you successfully convince us that it couldn't be your fault, then it's the fault of somebody who's not present. Another one, we believe it's okay to double park to keep others from parking too close to our vehicle that is better than everyone else's. Another one, whether we bought the extended warranty or not is not what's important. We had no way of knowing we would need to use it, and that's not our fault. We bought the product. Isn't that enough? You will cover any damage. We believe there are laws that we can't recite which require you to fix it. And, I mean, did I mention it's not my fault? So common. Uh, Dr. John Townsend defines entitlement as the belief that one, I'm exempt from responsibility, that uh, I don't, I'm not responsible. And that, that approach to life uh, guarantees failures in life and career, wherever. And second, I am owed special treatment. Uh, the, the entitled person can feel like they've been mistreated and others need to make it up to them. And this, this sense of being owed really damages relationships. This idea that I deserve this is really becoming more and more common in the world around us. Uh, How many of you spotted, uh, if you were with us last week, spotted a commercial that said somehow I deserve this? Anybody see those, see one of those commercials? Yeah, I see a a number of hands. Let me tell you, I got an email from a ministry thing to a pastor and it told me I deserved it. I mean, I thought, now that's just kind of, you know, here we go. Uh, We all can fall into that trap. The problem, though, is that God didn't design the world to work that way. Just as he set it up with physical laws that always work, he designed the world with the relational laws. They're not always easy. It requires work, oftentimes for life, to go the way God intends. But it will work as we trust him and and conform our lives to his ways. Dr. Townsend, in his book, The, The Entitlement Cure, defines God's way as the hard way, which he says is the habit of doing what is best rather than what is comfortable to achieve a worthwhile outcome. And the problem is that we're all in that boat. We look around and we can clearly perhaps identify some people that we think are entitled, but, but the danger is we forget that we are too because all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall into that boat And it may not be something that is rampant in our life, in every area of our life, but it certainly can be present and even prevalent in certain parts of our lives. 
And the truth is, entitlement is more than just this feeling exempt from responsibility, more than being feeling like you're owed special treatment. Entitlement is a rejection of reality itself. It's refusing to, say, to see the way things are, to see the way your life is, the way others are. And it's interesting to me, in the Life Journal reading plan that many of us use as a daily reading plan of the Bible, this past week we finished up the book of Judges, which is a book that takes the story of the, the Israelites after they have left the prom, or entered the promised land and Joshua has died, and there's a period of time in there where they're under the leadership of these people called Judges. And, and yet, in the midst of all that, we see this, as the book goes on, you see what I call kind of a downward spiral, as the people more and more turn away from God. They, they call out to God for help, he comes and he rescues, rescues them, but then before long, they fall back away. And it just, it's this downward spiral until it gets to the point, uh, right at the end of the book, the very last b- verse of that book to me, is, to me is one of the most devastating judgments on why for them things are getting worse, but also a warning to us. In Judges 21-25, it says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, no matter what God's word says, no matter what I've heard Jesus say or teach, I'm gonna do what I wanna do because I know what's best. I've got this figured out. God doesn't understand my situation. Surely what he is saying might work in your situation, pastor, but it would never work in mine. And that is the, the pronouncement, if you will, on that generation But I think it continues to hold true. The people did what was right in their own eyes. Several hundred years later, after the Jews failed to get their act together and and, uh, more sin, they were defeated by the Babylonians and taken into exile. And a, a young Jewish man named Daniel sought to do, instead of what was right in his own eyes, he sought to do what was right in God's eyes, to obey him, even when it went against the the, the, the teachings or the rulings of the, the people in charge. And in the midst of that, the book of Daniel then tells stories in the Old Testament from this time where, where Daniel was recognized for great wisdom uh, throughout and became a trusted advisor along with some other guys uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man who really saw himself as at the top of the pile, uh, entitled. God warned him, though, through a dream interpreted by Daniel, that he needed to change his attitude, um, his view of reality, how he saw things. And, and the king refused, and, and he faced the consequences. And in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 30, and it's in, there in your notes if you want to read along, it says, as Nebuchadnezzar looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor little bit of bragging going on there. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time, or seven years, will pass while you live this way, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, Scripture tells us, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. 
He ate grass like a cow and was drenched with the dew of heaven. Now, what we know is, is that Nebuchadnezzar thought he knew what was best. And in effect, Scripture is saying he was rejecting reality, the way things really are, even though God warned him. He believed he was better than everyone else. He wasn't accountable to anybody else. He was responsible for everything. And God taught him a lesson that, thankfully, it took a while, but he learned so that we come to the next verse. And it says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. In other words, I realized I've done something wrong here. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. See, entitlement blinds a person to the way God created the world to work. An entitled king saw the whole world revolving around him, and he learned otherwise. The entitled person sees a problem at work or experiences a problem in their marriage and thinks, it can't be my fault. There's no way I could be the problem here, even though odds are their attitude, in fact, contribute a great deal to the problem, and they don't see the need to work on the things that they themselves can do. Now, everything, it takes two when there's a problem like that, but inevitably, when one person thinks everybody else has to fix it, then odds are they, in fact, themselves are part of the problem. We see this entitled attitude going all the way back to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve to be, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, to be like God. Adam and Eve felt like they could and should have more than what God created them for. And, and when Satan offered them to that, they jumped at it. It was easy for them to believe Satan's lie. But entitlement, interestingly, already existed before the creation of the world. When Satan reflected on his own limitations and he refused to accept them. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 14, 14, which many authorities tell us was the words of the devil himself. He said, I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself. Satan desired for himself exactly what he tempted Adam and Eve with. And and as a consequence of that, God cast him out of heaven and he became the devil we know today. We, We too have too often been dissatisfied with who God created us to be. We think we ought to be like somebody else. We think we ought to have more. We ought to be from that side of town or we ought to have these advantages or we ought to have these skills or life ought to work for me better than that. We are also God's creations, his creatures if you will, And too often because of sin in our lives, we too are driven to be like our creator. That somehow we can do that. We're we're dissatisfied if we're not the best, if we're not at the top of the food chain. And all too often that, that feeling starts to infect our minds that we begin to believe it's our right. That somehow it's owed to us. We start feeling, I deserve it. I really do. And I suspect a lot of us have thought that. Maybe not all the time, maybe not in every setting, but some things happen and we say, I deserve better than this, or I deserve that promotion, or I deserve to get that thing I want. The question is, do we? Because when we start looking at history, and, and, and even our own lives, we start to see nothing but quite honestly, disaster arising from an attitude of entitlement. 
I mean, countries go to war because they feel entitled to the resources of another. Companies go off the rails when believers feel they, or leaders feel they are smarter and better than anyone else and they deserve it out of a sense of entitlement. Right here in Houston, many of us remember Enron and there were some very arrogant people in the upper echelons of that company. Fortunately, God has given us principles that help us escape the trap of entitlement to experience what God really desires, his best for us. But let me tell you, these aren't quick fixes, okay? They're not three easy steps, and if you do this in two hours, everything's going to be fine. They will, in many cases, they will be hard. As I said earlier, Townsend, in fact, calls them the hard way. And these principles are like physical laws. We can push against them, but we can't ultimately escape them because they were put in place by God. Remember, he's the creator. He made it all. He determines the rules. He works and knows how it all works best. And even when we don't like them, we, we butt our heads against them. We say it ought to be different. We think it's too limiting. It's not fair. You don't understand, God. You haven't been where I've been. He put them in place to protect us and guide us in the right direction of life. And, and the analogy that always keeps coming back to me is the analogy of an apparent. Every person in here is a parent or has been responsible for someone or a, a manager in any kind of work setting knows that sometimes there are things you know, you understand, or limitations you know need to be in place for your children and for an employee for their own good, even though they perceive it as per- keeping them from experiencing the life they think they ought to have. Every one of us has seen that. And, and these principles are as true as gravity. I may decide I don't like the force of gravity. It's too limiting. I ought to be able to fly around. I ought to be able to float around. And, and, and I can jump up and for a fraction of a second I can defy it. But gravity always brings me back to earth. And of course, it's one thing to jump up in the ground, from the ground, but if I'm up on the third floor and I step out of a third-story window, no matter what I think or feel about gravity, the results are assured. It's going to happen. None of us can defy gravity for very long, and none of us can defy God's way of living in the long run. It doesn't make any sense then to ignore reality or to, to act in, in, as if I can oppose it and still thrive. So much better to figure out how to cooperate with God's ways, his principles, use them, put them in place. Yes, it may be harder sometimes. Yes, it may challenge us. Yes, it may push us out of our comfort zones. Yes, it may call us to do some things that we don't want to do but they are there because God intends the best for you and me. So we're gonna look at five biblically-based hard way principles this morning, which are really God's way. The first one is that we are completely dependent on God. In other words, life cannot exist or function apart from him. God doesn't create, there is no life, there is no earth, there is no gateway church. God, in, in the beginning, created and continues to create in Acts 17, 28, it says, for in him we live and move and exist. Now, 
Granted, you have to decide if you believe that, and you may not. But you need to know that it is a fundamental tenet of Christianity that is demonstrated all through Scripture. And if we understand and believe this, it leads to a profound sense of humility. Because I'm not God. He is, and he is all-powerful, and I'm not. And, you know, too often we misunderstand humility to mean somehow second-rate or second-class. But true humility is simply accepting the reality of who God is and who I am. It's not a value judgment. It's accepting the truth. It's recognizing what's going on. That God is all-powerful, all-knowing, the creator who created me, who created each one of us, and, and, and knows what's best for us, his beloved creations. He made us unique, and he loves each one of us. We, we aren't more than that. We don't have to live to impossible standards because God knows we're human. We can't do all things. We can't be in all places. We can't figure it all out. We don't have all the answers, which in many cases, if you think about it, may actually be a good thing. But Satan tempts us to try to be more and then sometimes tempts us even to be less. But life simply works better when we live it with this firm grasp of who he is and who we are. It's, it's like the analogy I use sometimes of the lawnmower. A lawnmower was made to mow grass. You get out on the grass and you mow it, it does a pretty good job. You take a lawnmower and you try to use it to, to, to trim a hedge. I mean, I think it can be done. You gotta be pretty strong. You don't wanna get your hands up in there. And, and you got to hold it, and odds are it's going to be a little bit whole, hard to hold it even. So if you're trying to craft something kind of nice, you're probably going get, to get it kind of messed up. So, yeah, it can be done, but would you want to keep doing that hour after hour? Would you want to keep doing it that way? When it wasn't created for that, that's not its purpose. That's not how it works best. And the same thing is true for our lives. We think we know what is best when God, in fact, has given us the owner's manual that says here is the way to live your life. You can do these other things, and yes, you can make it work for a time. But eventually, you're going to pay a price for that. Life works better when we live it God's way. Um, in contrast, entitlement drives us to see ourselves as better than everyone else, that we can determine our own destiny. It implies that I can be and do anything I want, and I shouldn't have to live by other people's limitations or restrictions. And, and it's, a, it's lame to even depend on anyone else. But entitlement ultimately leaves us proud and alone and empty and functionless. I want to tell you, don't listen to entitlement because you have a boss and his name is God. And it's why he has said Jesus is Lord and master of our lives so that we don't have to be. We don't have to have all the answers. We can acknowledge that, that we don't, some things we don't understand. And sometimes he will, as Lord, he will tell us to do some things and we won't always enjoy it. But he tells us to do it because hear this, he loves us. And it is his understanding, his innate knowledge as creator that it is what is best for us. It is how life will work best. And that's what he desires for us. More, the most worthwhile outcomes possible. 
when we depend on him. Second, we're designed to live in connection with each other. I mean, living in relationship with God and with others is just fundamental to the way our lives were created. It's a reflection of God himself. You may not have thought about this, but God himself is the perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing as one. And it's how God created life to work, in relationship. Jesus said the great commandment is you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything about that is relational. It's a relationship vertically with God and relationship horizontally with each other. And life works best based on living by love in all of our relationships, in every area of our lives, whether it's a family or a work setting, it's in our marriages or our churches or even in, in our companies. All of them depend on healthy relationships to function effectively, to find their true value and purpose. You can't have a good workplace where no one talks to each other. It won't work. You have to be able to relate to one another and connect. We are drawn to being connected because relationships enable us to see and accept and, and function more normally in true reality. And this is where the entitlement mentality really causes havoc because it distorts the power and the meaning of, of our relationships, of our connections, so they don't operate well. The, the entitled mentality is so inward focused on me and what I deserve and what I ought to have that I, it starts to see others as simply tools to meet their needs. They're not human beings. They don't have feelings. They don't have issues going on in their lives. They're simply people who ought to be doing something to help me with my life or my job work it out my way. When we start seeing people like that, we're not seeing them as people. We have turned them into things. And that is so much a part of the entitled mentality. And it, it, it focuses on that, whether it's in the business world. It, you know, we talk today, we hear a good bit about pornography. Do you know what pornography is? It's simply turning a human being into a thing for one's own purposes. It's not seeing them as a human. It's not seeing that that they may have had difficult choices to make at some point in their life. It's turning them then to things that are there for me, for my pleasure, for my experience. That is a very dangerous way to live when we start turning people into tools, into things. And it is rampant in our culture and society today. Entitlement cuts us off from being connected. It, it, it causes breakdowns in relationships and career and self-care in our spiritual lives. It leaves the person empty. And, and we realize that person can't, when we see that in someone else, that they can't relate well to others. They don't value others well. It's one reason the church has always emphasized the importance of the community of faith that we're in this together, that we are here to support one another, to encourage one another, to walk alongside one another, to sometimes call out one another in appropriate settings where we can encourage and we can be the body of Christ. It's why we emphasize everyone being in a group, whether it's, it's a group we offer here through Gateway or your own. We need this connectedness. 
Third, we need to take responsibility for our choices. Now, God gave you and me a lot of freedom in how we choose to live our lives. In other words, he didn't say you're robots and you have to do exactly what I say. He gave us choices because that is how life starts to have meaning. If, if I can't make any choices, if I'm, my, my decisions are all pre-ordered, then, then my life really doesn't have a meaning because I'm just following, I'm just a robot. So God had to give you and me the ability to make choices Free will, we call that, in order for us, therefore, to experience life. And yet, because we also have that freedom, it means we also have a responsibility that goes with that, to be responsible for our choices in our lives, be responsible about how much I will trust God, will I follow God's ways. Joshua was confronted by this, and near the end of his book of Joshua, he says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, he was talking to the Jews, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He says there's a choice there. But he also says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But he does, he acknowledges the truth that we have choices and we, have, we are held accountable for those choices and which way our lives go. Research has shown that life is most fulfilling when we own our choices, we own our decisions. But people with entitled attitudes don't want to take ownership of their lives, acting all too often like their choices and their, their resulting actions have no consequences. It's not my fault. They should, have, they should have seen this coming. He should have handled it. They should have known better. Their concern is for what they need and what they desire in that moment. And so they have a hard time recognizing what the Bible also says is that we reap what we sow when bad things do happen. Entitled people often tend to put the blame on others because it's hard for them to reflect on a very important question. How did I contribute to this problem? A lot of times in marriages, we, we, we want to we say it's all someone's fault. The truth of the matter is, it's very seldom 100-0. It may be 99-1, but even if it's only one, it's still worth reflecting on what role or what part we had. The, the entitled person tends to feel like a victim, like they're powerless and they're unhappy. And the more we fight this tendency to blame others and, and instead take responsibility for our choices, the better life becomes. Which leads us to the four. Our flaws cannot be forgiven or healed until we admit them. Because all of us have a conscience, an inner voice, an inner judge many times that seems, can seem harsh and condemning. Many of us have heard statements like these, not just from others, but, but from ourselves. You'll never get it right. Why couldn't you do that better? You're letting everybody down. You're such a disappointment. And some of you, you have heard those words and they're so hurtful and they're so self-defeating and you you have a tendency to believe them this this harsh inner judge can slow us down can discourage us from taking risks can lead us to not like ourselves but let me tell you god never intended this for you now it's not that he doesn't want you to see yourself as you are he does absolutely but he doesn't condemn you for that he loves you we are the creatures. We are not the creator. We are not 
perfect. We're not incapable of mistakes. God made us so that mistakes are just going to happen. Even if there'd never been a fall, there's nothing that says we would not have still made mistakes. Even if there'd not been a fall, there was nothing that says that we would that we would somehow know everything. We wouldn't. We're human beings. We have inherent limitations, inherent capacities. But the, the judge inside of us wants to push us and tell us we're wrong or we're bad or whatever. We need to remember we are intentionally, individually, specially created by God. Scripture says, I I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We've sung about that this morning. Why? Because the message around us is that, that we're not, that we don't measure up, that, that, that we are failures or failing or whatever the case may be. But God wants us to see and understand that he knows all about us. He knows what you did when you were five. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you did at work. He knows what you thought about maybe your spouse or your kids or your parents. He knows and he still loves you. See, isn't that the amazing thing? That's, the, that's what is so missing today. He knows and still he loves us. Parents, the best analogy sometimes is for us. We see our kids do stupid things sometimes, quite honestly. And we get so frustrated. But we get frustrated because we know they could do better, and yet we still love them in the midst of it. And we're not going to abandon them. And we're not going to leave them out there. We're going to do all within our power to express that love in healthy, healing ways. When we see ourselves as God sees us, we, we understand this, this unconditional love, in spite of our faults and failings, means that we can then see ourselves as we really are. We can, we can actually admit we have faults and failings. We can say we're not the best at that sport, or we're not the smartest in the room, or that we don't know how to do something, because we realize that our value and worth isn't on the line. It's not because I failed at this that I'm no good. It's not because I did this so well that I'm so loved. There's an old saying that there's nothing you could do today that would cause God to love you any less, nor is there anything you could do that would cause him to love you any more. He simply loves you because he created you. You are his you are precious to him. He loves you no matter what. And the world can't take that away from you, though it tries. It loves to say, you got to measure up. you got to be this way. But that's not how God intended by any stretch. And we have to stop listening to the lies and trust what he says. And that that. That ability to do that gives us then a freedom to live our lives, to understand. The Bible says, accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you. He, he created us so that we can recognize and acknowledge our faults and our failings, our sins, that they're there, they're real. 
that we can truly be ourselves. We are known, we are loved just the way we are, and that frees us in to be able to admit and confess these things to God and others then can help us and we can trust him to help seek to be transformed and become better. Admitting our flaws and therefore taking steps with God's help to find healing is the only way we truly grow. You look at any 12-step program, including our Celebrate Recovery, and you will find these steps inherent because we need to be truthful. We need to acknowledge it. It seems like a paradox. But those who run from the negative will suffer from it, while those who accept the negative can find power to transform it. Entitlement drives us away from seeing and admitting our faults and flaws and sins. It won't let us bring them up with others in order to get help. We, we think we're not worthy, we can't afford to, we're afraid to. God's way is hard. Because you and I have to actually face ourselves and admit the truth. Not, not that God doesn't know. You know, confession is not simply saying, hey, God, I wanted to tell you about something I did the other day that you probably didn't know about. God already knows. Confession is actually admitting to God what he already knows. But he wants us to admit it. Don't you want your kid? When you catch your kids on a lie or you catch them doing something, don't you want them to fess up? Don't you want them to tell the truth? Isn't that a positive step? It doesn't mean there's not consequences. But the consequences won't be as bad as if they deny the truth. Admitting opens the door for Christ to come in and help us heal and carry that load. The Apostle Paul wrote this from his own experience. He said, Christ said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So Paul says, now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul discovered being open about his weaknesses and sins opened the door for the healing of Christ to come into his life and to have Christ's power work through those weaknesses. And the same is true for you and me. And finally, to live long and with contentment. We need to find our purpose in life and and fulfill it. Life only works when when we're not living for ourselves but instead for the world around us. We've we've received love. We've received acceptance from God, but not just to hold on to it or tuck it in and say, oh, I'm I'm, I'm loved, because that that feeds back into a sickness. If it's all about me and me receiving it and I need it. We weren't created to hoard all we have for ourselves, but to develop our talents, our skills, and use them to make the world a better place around us. There's an old analogy, maybe you've heard it, of, of uh, the Holy Land between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. Uh, it's actually a lake, a, a very large lake. And the, the Jordan River flows into it, and the Jordan River flows out of it. And the beauty of it is, this is a lake that is alive and teeming with fish, and, and it's a healthy place, and the water is good. But you go a couple hundred miles south along that same Jordan River, the same water that flowed through the sea Sea of Galilee, you come to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outlet. The water flows in, but it doesn't go out. And what we know is nothing lives in the Dead Sea. There is no life. It's it's death. The, the, The shoreline is barren of life, even. And the same thing is true 
in our lives. God made us this way from the very beginning that, that allow his love and his truth to flow in and through us because if I try to hold on to it, I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm becoming the Dead Sea and rather the Sea of Galilee. God said, fill the earth and govern it. He, he designed us to bring order and fruitfulness to our world. And so we're at our best when we work hard, when we do what we're good at, when we bring that good to others. Entitlement works against us because it believes the goal of my life isn't what I give, but happiness. Me. In fact, happiness in many lives becomes the highest goal of life. Maybe you've even said that. All I want is a happy life. That's all I want. That's all I need. But listen, this is really important. You will not find in Scripture, in God's Word, that happiness is a goal for a human being's life. Now, everybody tells us it should be. In fact, many of us probably think that. Pop culture likes to say it's all about happiness. If I'm not happy, I'm not being fulfilled, uh, then I can dump that marriage or I can drop that job or I don't have to be responsible for this or that. But here's the thing. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is when things happen to happen to go the way they happen to happen to go. It's all about happenstance. And so happiness leads me to only seek after those things I want that I think will make me happy, and never can I aim for something good for me that might be hard or cause pain. And yet if we always avoid pain, we'll never grow. In fact, that is the mindset of a child. Avoid pain at all costs. But sometimes we have to take them to the doctor to get a shot, and they want to avoid the pain. But we know that they need the shot, they need the pain for better. And the same is true for us. The hard way requires us to sometimes choose hard, even painful choices for a greater good, for God's good. If happiness is my goal in life, it makes it almost impossible for me to choose anything that might cause pain. And we descend then into an endless cycle of avoiding pain and chasing happiness. Now, hear me, there is nothing wrong with happiness, okay? This isn't bashing happiness like you shouldn't be happy. It's not, no, you know, Christians are just supposed to be glum all the time. No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is happiness just isn't a good goal for your life. God didn't create us to seek after pleasure and happiness, although many people think that. He created us to seek out and live out our purpose, which always involves love for others. In a healthy life, happiness then is a byproduct of living our purpose, of loving others, of giving back, of being useful, of making a difference through what God can do in and through us. It's a wonderful experience. It's just not the goal. It's the byproduct. And when I start turning the byproduct into the goal, my, my values, my focus shift. And I start asking myself, what will make me happy? And that doesn't end very well. We don't give of our talents so we can be happy, but because we care and we want to make a difference. But then we often do feel happy because happiness is that byproduct to enjoy. Not a dream to chase after at any and all costs. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, Randy, I don't agree with this. That's okay. But 
let me just assure you that if you look through God's word, this is in line with that. And, and because the world says it or because you feel like that's a, a good goal, does that mean it really is? Or do we need to turn to the one who does know, who created us, who understands? It's not saying happiness shouldn't exist. It's not saying we shouldn't be happy. It's saying it's a terrible goal to chase. And all of these principles aren't intended to keep us from enjoying life, but to put life in their correct place, in their correct priority, to live God's way, which will, in some cases, be harder at first. But it's actually putting things right and will, in the long run, probably be easier. We discover our lives matter, that we do have purpose, that we can face hard things about ourselves and about our situations because we are confident God loves me. And so even though I don't like it, and it's gonna be hard to get through it, I don't have to run from it, I don't have to hide, I don't have to deny it. Jesus understood what happens when we get self-absorbed. When we seek after what we want, that's not reality. We are creations of the creator, we are not the creator. And the entitled person fails to see this and becomes so self-absorbed. The devil understood this, and that's why he calls us. He says, happiness is the best thing you can seek. But Jesus not only understood that, but he also was clear about why he came. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. More, better. That's, his, that's why he came. Not to berate you and me, not to condemn you and me, not to keep you and me from doing things that we might enjoy, but keep us from doing things that could be hurtful to us and harm others, encourage us to do things that fulfill why we're here, why we are created, why we can uniquely even ourselves do these things. And I want to admit, in the church, we don't teach this, we don't fulfill it perfectly. Because we also are human beings. And we also fall short of the glory of God. But it is why we're here to help each of us become increasingly the individuals God created us to be, to live the lives he created us to live, to become fully devoted followers of Christ. And so we point you to things, and we encourage things. And yes, at the same time, we have to look at ourselves, and we have to recognize that we've got our own problems. We've got our own faults. None of us are perfect. It's not saying we're so much better, and so it's saying, hey, kind of like D.T. Niles said 100 years ago about evangelism, it's just one beggar helping another beggar find food. That we're in this together. None of us has all the answers. None of us has got it all figured out. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be honest. That's why we need the love of God to center our lives. And that's why we need to live out our purposes, to make a difference, to not get caught up in ourselves, but to be used by God for his glory. And life works. If you want to read more about some of this uh, in, your, in your bulletin notes, sermon notes on the back is a title of the book. We'll, in fact, have some of those 
those books here in our uh, next steps area next week. We, we couldn't get them this week, but we'll have them. Um, our prayer team's gonna be down here in just a moment. And if, if there's something in all of this that you need to talk about, maybe you need to confess something you've been dealing with. Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ to gain that kind of love. Maybe you're struggling with someone else. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. We also, also remind you as you go out this, this what if concert. Man, ladies, this is the opportunity not just for you, but also for you to reach out to others and help them experience the love of God. You know, what if I could truly, completely surrender myself to Christ? Because some people don't even have that vision. And I know it's gonna be lifted up in a way that, that will make a lot of sense encourage you to invite folks, and don't forget, if you're looking for a way to make a difference, our volunteer, Josh is over there right now, and we'd love to just walk you for a few minutes and just show you some options and opportunities. And if you're your first time here today, or your guest, or you came with somebody, or Gateway family, you brought someone, some of us would be right out here, and we'd, we'd love to greet you. Because all this is a journey, and all of us are in this together, and we're all needing one another, and we're all seeking God together in this. And that's why we do this. And that's why we pray, Heavenly Father, help. Because none of us have all the answers. None of us have gotten it all figured out. And all of us sometimes feel like crying too. Because we try and we try the way the world around us points us, and it just it seems like a hamster wheel. Or every time we think we've reached a, a, a new level where it should get better, it doesn't feel any better. In fact, it may even feel emptier. Father, help us to trust you and your way. Help us turn from feeling perhaps entitled in some areas of our lives and lay it at your feet. We pray this, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Do something today to make a difference. See you next time. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.